today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat, sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many, Jesus said. Have the people, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given them thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Sulai. Morning, Redemption. Um, if you could, uh, please open your Bibles or your apps to John chapter 6. Uh, you're going to need that uh, this morning because we're not just doing um, 15 verses, but we're going to actually uh, go 40 plus um, because the, the story that was just read about this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 really sets the context for a much bigger narrative. Um, uh, we know this miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. Um, I like to call this event the great misunderstanding because all of the verses after it until uh, 40, 41 are, are Jesus trying to help the people to get their bearings about what's really going on. They have a they have a context, they've been, they've been conditioned and cultured in a particular way, and, and Jesus is not what they think he is, and he's trying to help them to see that. He's trying patiently, but I imagine he's also quite frustrated by it. And, and many of the misunderstandings that these people have are misunderstandings that we have today, so this is really relevant to us as well. But I don't think you can understand this miracle fully uh, without understanding what happens after the miracle. So we're going to do a lot of work in that regard today. Something else you should know 
about this is that this is the one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So it must be significant. It must be important. Uh, and it is. So we're not going to read what was just read. We will read starting in verse 15 when we get there. But uh, So opening your Bibles, your apps, looking at what was just read, I want to take us through that and, and talk a little bit about the miracle and set us up for everything that happens afterwards. So uh, verse 2 says that this great crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing to the sick. So he's healing people, and, and the people see this, and so now what they want is that they want to follow him because they, they believe that he can do things for them, whether it's healing, whether it's feeding, whatever it might be, but they're beginning to think about Jesus' power in terms of their agenda, their strategy, and their desires. And so that's why they are uh, following him. And, and John says, um, he's, it, it's, it's translated that they saw the signs uh, of what he was doing to the sick. That word signs also means miracle, but it very specifically is more than just a miracle. It, it's more than just a supernatural reversal of natural uh, law and order. Uh, th- this is a sign. Uh, specifically in the Greek, this word literally means that it points at something else and that it, it, it's something that confirms or authenticates a truth that's beyond the event that just happened. That is an important distinction to understand. The, the sign is a miracle, but it's pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. If you're just interested in what he can do and not interested in who he is, you're going to have a misunderstanding. And that's the big misunderstanding that is happening here. It's our misunderstanding as well. They completely miss this truth. And I've used this illustration before, but I think it's, it's helpful. It's a little bit goofy, but it's, it's helpful to understand. Years ago, when I was seminary, in seminary, I was tied into a lot of churches in Kingman, Arizona. And so I was going up um, many weekends and preaching in Kingman. And I would preach in the morning, and then I would drive back to Phoenix. It's a three-hour drive, and I'm tired, and I can't wait to get home. I've missed Jackie and the, and the girls. And there's, you know, you hit, you hit um, Interstate 40 going east, and then you, you're looking for 93 to head south through Arizona. And, and on 40, just before you hit 93, there's a sign there that says, Phoenix, 150 miles. Now, understand, that's a sign that's pointing me to where I really need to go, where I really want to go, okay? It's giving me the information that points me somewhere else. And I would, I would never see that sign. I want to be in Phoenix. I would never see that sign that says Phoenix 150 miles, stop my car, get out, and bow down to the sign, and hug the sign, and begin to worship the sign, and, and begin to revel in the sign, okay? That would be stupid, right? Okay, that's not my... Pr- okay, here you go. That's what these people are doing with Jesus. They're only interested in the sign, not what the sign is pointing toward. And, and he's, you, you, you could just sense later on that he gets a little bit frustrated uh, about this. And that's why we're covering 40 verses today and not just 14 or 15. Verse 4 mentions that this happens at about the time of the Passover. Um, this is an important detail because the Passover commemorates the exodus of God's people 1,500 years earlier out of Egypt and into the wilderness for 40 years. And the significance is that Moses is in the background of this entire event, the entire time. And, and Jesus, they're trying to tie Jesus to Moses. And he's like, 
And Jesus is like, Moses is cool, but I'm not Moses, and my purpose isn't what Moses's was, and you're missing uh, the point there. So this background, uh, we're going to see these allusions all through these 40 verses, and so that's important to understand as well. And, and then there comes a bunch of information that helps us understand that this really was a miracle, that this should not have just naturally happened. The first thing that we're told is that as they said, well, 200 denarii wouldn't even be enough to pay for all of the food for all of these people. Uh, the point there being that uh, 200 denarii was about, uh, according to the conversion rates, eight months' wages. Now, just think about you and eight months' wages. They're saying that's not even enough to feed all of these people. So the first problem they have is a problem with how much this would cost. And then you get to verse 9, and they, and they say, well, there's these five barley loaves and two pieces of fish. In their context, once again, we have to understand what all that means. Why specifically barley? Why would they give us that detail that it's barley? Why is that important? The reason is because in their context, barley specifically indicates that this is the, the lowest form of bread. It's an impoverished form of bread. It's very, very meager. Okay. Now, we're in Arcadia. You and I understand there's bread and then there's bread, right? Okay, so here you go. There's Wonder Bread, and then there's San Francisco Sourdough. Amen? You see, okay, the, the, what we're looking at here isn't even Wonder Bread, okay, which none of you, I'm sure, will buy uh, on purpose. Okay, I just, I have that sense in Arcadia, okay? This isn't even Wonder Bread. These are little barley uh, rolls. And then the, the fish, everybody says, it doesn't specifically say, but everybody says they're sardines or they're sardine-like, so they're fish about this big, Okay? And what they did with those fish was they would smoke them and then dry them. They would cook them with smoke, and then they would dry them. They're not smoking them like some 60s thing, okay? That's Zechariah's problem. Anyway, um, (laughs) they would smoke them and then dry them uh, so that they would last for a long, long time. So here you go. It's like fish jerky. Any of you like beef jerky? Okay, it's like fish jerky. It's the exact opposite of what sushi would be. And, and there's no rice to be found um, either. And what, for whatever reason, a little personal thing, but when I was growing up, a few of you in this room might appreciate this. When I was, the rest of you just listen and Google it later. When I was growing up, my dad would go out and buy these um, flat cans that were about this shape and this size of sardines. Oh, some of you are already shaking your... Uh, yeah, you were, okay, so, and, and with every can would come this weird little key that had a slit in the middle of the key, and, and you would use that key to peel back the, the metal top of the can, and, and it would open it up to that awful smell of, of, of these oily sardines, remember the, okay, some of you are like, and then my dad would make sandwiches out of them, and I've heard that somebody once made a sardine and peanut butter sandwich, but I can't, we can't confirm it because he's dead. At any rate, um... So it just makes me think, but these are tiny little itty-bitty, there's nothing. The point is, there's nothing. And then we're told in verse 10 that there's 5,000 men. And I, and I get all the discussion, it's like the Exodus. There were 660,000 men that came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Um, what that really means is that there were 2 or 3 million people, 5,000 men here. That doesn't include the women and children, so there may have been, there may have been more. That's fine if you want to have that conversation. That's not the point. The point is, it was a lot of people. So let's just say 5,000 or even 4,000. There's another time where Jesus um, fed 4,000. Think about the, the logistical problem of getting four or 5,000 people through a buffet line. I will tell you, when we have a buffet and there's like 200 people here, 
okay? And we have a row of tables for the buffet, and you can go on either side. The first thing that we'll hear from people is, why not two rows of uh, tables so that you can have four places where you can go get food? That, that's the first thing that people will say, I want to get the food faster. Here you go. This must have been some bottleneck. So just think about uh, the logistics of that, which, which is obviously a problem. And then also consider in their context, what if they did have the money? Let's say they had 1,000 denarii, okay? Uh, 40 months worth of, of, of money that they could go and buy the bread. In their context, there was not a city within just a couple of hours' walk so if you think two hours there, two hours back, that's four hours. That's a long time to wait for your meal. Uh, even if they could walk to a city and had the money to buy the bread, uh, there wasn't a city within two hours' walk that had more than 200 people in it. They're not going to have enough bread for four or 5,000 people. There's no way that this is going to happen. And, and then the crowd. I don't think we appreciate the crowd in their context. This is a huge crowd. We think... Gee, if the Suns only get 15,000 for a home game, that's really light. We think if we got 5,000 people for a political rally, that would be really low. That wouldn't be very good. Uh, our youngest daughter and her husband, uh, Darby and Joey, live in Lincoln, Illinois. It's a town, city of 14,000 people. You and I immediately, well, that's podunk, really small. Understand, a, a town or a city of 14,000 people in their context would be a massive metropolitan area. We don't appreciate uh, the size of, of the crowd uh, as well. And so all of this points to the fact that this was a supernatural occurrence that, that Jesus was able to feed them. And it's not just that he fed them. Look at verses 12 and 13. It's not just that he fed them, but there was an abundance. They, they had more left over than they, than they started with. And I think that's a beautiful picture of this fact. Jesus never has just enough grace for us. He has an abundance of grace. His grace overflows. There, there, isn't, there isn't a time when you and I sin, as awful as I know some of us feel about our sin, there isn't a time that you and I can sin where Jesus is looking at that sin going, oh man, I, what do I have in reserve? I don't know I just barely made it. No, there's no way. There, there's not a competition. There's, no, there's never a time when there's, we're worried about whether or not there's enough grace. There's, we cannot outsin Jesus' grace. And that's really important to be able to see and understand as well. And then verse 14, the people call him a prophet. So why prophet? Uh, again, they're not calling him the Messiah. They're not looking at him and going, is this God? Is this the one that, the, that our prophets spoke of in the Hebrew Bible? Uh, they're not thinking that way. They're saying, oh, he's, he's a prophet like Moses. They're thinking of him as this new Moses figure. But Jesus is way, way more than that. And that's where Jesus gets frustrated with them. Uh, the Gospel of John scholar Andreas Kostenberger writes this. The title prophet for Jesus was not commonly, uh, not commonly used, but was the most often used by those who knew little about Jesus, especially since he is much more than a prophet. So now we go into the aftermath of this, starting with verses 15 through 19. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. 
The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, which would be approximately halfway across the Sea of Galilee. This was a, a lake that was uh, about eight miles wide. So he's about, they're about halfway across. They saw Jesus walking uh, on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Okay? So look at verse 15. There it is again. We talked about this at length last week. They saw Jesus do this with the barley loaves and, and the little dried fish, and he was able to feed everybody. Boom. They start thinking about all of their motivations, all of their strategies, all of their agendas, all of their desires. And, and they said, we need to make him king. Now, Jesus is king, but he's not the type of king that they wanted. They wanted a military king, a political king, an economic king. That's not where Jesus that's not his domain. His domain is those things, yes, but it's way more than that. And it's primarily about our spiritual, our, our, the redemption of our souls. And, and so if that's the only thing you're interested in, military, politics, economics, power, wealth, status, those kinds of things, he's not interested. That's why he withdraws, so he knows. And then Jesus walks on water. Why? Why? A lot of people say the reason Jesus did this was just to amaze the disciples. That's not what's going on there. Uh, the, the, most, um, the best and most in-depth insights to this is it's Jesus letting the disciples know, I created this world, and I'm in charge of this world, and I can do whatever I want with this world. It wasn't just something, it wasn't just evening entertainment or a trick for his disciples, but rather it was once again Jesus making sure his disciples understood, I'm God. I'm the one who created this whole thing. I, I, I'm there in Genesis chapter 1 uh, when this happens. Now, some people have put forward, and they're usually the people that have a way of trying to explain away every supernatural occurrence in the Bible, no matter what it is. So they have put forward this idea that back then in the Sea of Tiberias, the, 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 the Sea of Galilee, that there must have been a, a shelf of, of land that was just under the surface of, of, the, um, of the water, so maybe two feet under the surface, and that's what he was walking out on. Okay, that, you, you got to understand. Okay, to believe that... Is, you, that takes way more faith to believe in that than, than to believe that Jesus is Messiah and Jesus is God. Because you have to understand that, that that thing would be out there and all these boats are crossing that, 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 that lake all the time and never run into it and don't know it's there and the disciples have no idea that it's there. It's just the knots that people will rack themselves up into to try to explain the supernatural realities of who Jesus is can be some of the most entertaining things that you've ever read in your life, quite frankly. It, it takes more faith to believe in some of these explanations than it does to believe that Jesus is just Jesus. He's God, okay? Donald Guthrie, on this point, he's a New Testament scholar, he muses. Then why are the disciples afraid? They're afraid because this is no optical illusion or trick. Jesus is really, truly walking on water, and that would scare us, too. And, and then you jump down to 22 and 24, and you really begin to see how this starts to, uh, to get unpacked. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away. 
Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So I come from an era that fully understands the way people would absolutely drop everything, no matter what it was. They would drop their spouse, their family, their job. Uh, they would drop everything in order to be able to seek after Elvis or the Beatles. Some of you have heard these names in the past, I think. But literally, they had. this is like Jesus' Elvis or Beatles moment here. They're, they're just, it's, it's so unbelievable they want to pursue him. But why? you got to ask the question, why? What, what is the deeper reason why they are seeking him? They're seeking him for their desires, for their strategy, for their agenda, for what they believe they can accomplish if they have Jesus under their authority rather than being under the authority of Jesus. It's a really important distinction. So their desires are to be politically strong. I'm glad we don't live in a time anymore where political strength is an issue for us. They want to be politically strong. If they can co-opt Jesus to, for their politics, that would be great. They have a desire to never have to worry about work or production or sustainability. Jesus could do that for them. Uh, they have a desire for power. Whatever kind of power it is, they had this desire, so they're seeking after him. So then verses 25 through 34. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered that. Here you go. Jesus always answers the question they should have asked, not the question that they asked. It's not important how he got there. What's important is who he is, okay? So Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the, your fill of the loaves, because you got out of your car and embraced and worshiped the sign that says Phoenix, 150 miles. That's why you're, you're, you are seeking me. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes. Now, there's, a, there's two levels of understanding there. We'll get to the second one in a minute. But right on the surface, they understand that what he's talking about is do not labor for the manna. You're thinking about Moses. You're thinking about the Exodus. The, the, the Exodus was the gospel of the Old Testament. That was their gospel. That was their salvation moment. You're thinking about the manna, manna here. I'm saying don't work for that. That's not what you want to work for. Uh, right now, don't think about, don't labor for the uh, food that perishes, but rather labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus using this seal language is, is um, in their context, they would get that because everything in the Roman uh, Empire was sealed with the governor's or the empire's seal, and you could not break that seal. Uh, if you broke the seal, if something gets sealed with the, the emperor's or the, or the governor's signet ring, and you broke that seal, you could be executed for it. Uh, Jesus is using that imagery in a different way. He's saying, look, if you come to me, I am going to seal you in the love and the redemption and salvation of God the Father through my uh, uh, crucifixion and resurrection, and that seal can never be broken. And I know for some of you it's like, okay, this is very cliche, but it's, but it's true. Once saved, always saved. You didn't do anything to be saved by Jesus. You can't do anything to break your salvation. By you have been sealed. So he's using that language to help us understand uh, that theological reality. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, 
This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, isn't that just like us as human beings? We got to do something. We got to do something. I got I to be good. I got to do good. I got to go. I got to do this massive. I got to change the world, and then I'll be acceptable to God. And here's Jesus. He's saying, here's the work. Believe. Have faith. Trust. You're seeking this bread. That's not where salvation lies. Salvation lies right here. That, that's a really important point to get for us as well. Uh, he said so, and then uh, in verse 30, so they said to him, well, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Okay, understand, these are the same people that the day before saw him take five barley loaves and two little sardines and feed 5,000 people. What in the wide world of sports do these people want? I don't, I don't understand. They've been seeing him heal when no doctor could heal. Now they see this miracle, and now they're coming and what? Demanding more signs. They're demanding more signs. At some point, he's going to get a little exasperated with this, okay? Uh, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. See, they're, so, they're all focused on this manna. Just, we just want the bread. Just give us the bread, man, Okay? Uh, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, he's correcting them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I'm the bread of God. I'm the bread of life, okay? And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So, so they're still locked in to oral wheat. That's essentially what they're, they're locked into here. So verse 26, I, I want you to hear this. This is really, really important, and this is why they've been conditioned and cultured in this way. The, the New Testament scholar Greg Keener writes this, Roman emperors regularly kept empire citizens pacified, keyword pacified, with free food and entertainment. The Roman emperors regularly kept the citizens pacified with free food and entertainment. Now, I know it's just a movie, uh, but, but you have to understand, there's great truth in this movie. How many of you have seen the, the, the movie Gladiator? Okay, the, 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 the Gladiator games were all about pacifying the citizens to keep them entertained. That, that's what Commodus was doing, okay? And then, more specifically, there's that one, for me, iconic scene... In Gladiator, some of you remember this, okay, when it's between a couple of the games and there's a lull in the action, like halftime or, or maybe a timeout, okay, and, and what happens? Uh, there's people down in, in the arena who are now throwing whole loaves of bread to the people. Do you remember that? Throwing loaves of bread to the people. Okay, how many of you have been to a Suns or a Coyotes game and you will absolutely freak out and make a complete fool of yourself because there's some woman shooting out of a gun a $10 t-shirt that you just have to have? You're going to be pacified by a t-shirt. Nothing has changed. People go nuts for these stupid t-shirts. I, I always find it interesting. Like, I'm the only one who's just sitting, I'm, I'm the old grumpy guy who's just sitting in his chair when the t-shirts are pulled out. You know, I'm not going to be pacified by a t-shirt. Now, you get me one of those silky jackets, then we might be able to talk, okay? So he says, Roman emperors regularly kept empire citizens pacified with free food and entertainment. Jesus has a completely different and better mission, but it is one the people struggle to understand because they've been so conditioned. 
You know, during this time out, we're not going to shoot t-shirts. We're going to have somebody tell you about Jesus. Boo, boo. I mean, the boos would just start. We want the t-shirts, okay? This is a comment on our current culture, clearly. We've been conditioned in a certain way, so we struggle to see Jesus. Again, Jesus' mission was different and better. Jesus is, here you go, um, Keener uses the word pacified. Jesus is not interested in pacification. Do you think Jesus went to the cross so that we would be pacified? It's just ridiculous to even think of it uh, that way. Rather, Jesus' mission is redemption, restoration, and fulfillment. Redemption, restoration, and fulfillment. So right now, I'm just going to ask you, seriously wrestle with this. Is our life goal simply to be pacified? Because if it is, you're going to listen to culture. And you're going to keep pursuing all of these things that you think will, you'll find some measure of fulfillment in, and you won't. Or are we looking and longing for the deeper love and redemption of Jesus? The people only saw food. They didn't see Jesus. The, the ministry of this book that uh, we're using to help us go through, um, uh, Love Walked Among Us, the ministry is called See Jesus. And the reason is because we don't see him. And, and the desire is for us to actually see uh, Jesus. And the rhetoric, he says, the food that perishes, that's their desire. So there's two levels. You're, they, you are seeking the food that you desire, which is the manna, but also you're seeking the food that per- I'm sorry, the food that perishes. That's also your desires. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the desire to be superior to others, what John in 1 John in his letter calls the pride of life. And those things perish. All of that stuff perishes. So this, is, this, this plays out on a couple of levels here. He's saying, don't seek that food that perishes, but rather seek the food for eternity, which is to believe in Jesus. And that work is, is to just have faith, to trust, to believe. Because if it's true, it'll change your life. See, see here, here you go. You and I, we respond to and we become like that which we put, place our faith in, that which we trust, and that which we worship. You've heard Cody talk about this many, many times. The more we worship something, the more like that thing we're going to become. And so if, you're, if your idol, your false god, is your career, nothing wrong with working, but if that's where you find all of your identity, all of your purpose, and nowhere else, that's what you're going to look like. That's what you're going to become. And that will break relationship, not only with God, but with others. If, if, you're, if your idol, what you worship, is wealth or the pursuit of wealth, same problem. If your idol is education, same problem. Nothing wrong with wealth. Nothing wrong with education. There's, the problem with, with idols, with false gods, is that they're not big, hairy, monster creatures. They're actually good things that are a part of our life. The problem is when they become ultimate things and we worship them instead of Jesus. We become like them instead of becoming like Jesus. That's the key. If our faith and trust and worship is in and on Jesus, we're going to then start to do the other works of the kingdom. We're going to love our neighbor. We're going to serve sacrificially. And again, I have to come back to verse 30 again. It's just, I mean, he fed 5,000 people with five king's rolls and a couple of sardines. I don't understand what these people are looking for. And what's funny 
is in five more chapters, we have the account of him raising Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so chapter 11, he, Jesus is gone. Lazarus, his, one of his very best friends in the whole world, they come and they tell him, hey, your buddy's sick and he's, and he's going to die. And Jesus said, okay, and he didn't go. And Lazarus dies. Jesus goes four days later. Some of you know this story. And the reason he went four days later was because he was going to resurrect him so that maybe people could see that he was God and they could believe in him. The most interesting thing about that miracle, and believe me, it was a miracle. He was not just dead. He was Texas dead. He was dead, okay? And, and the most interesting thing about that whole story is not the, the healing, not the, not the resurrection. The most interesting thing is right after it, it says, um, many who saw this miracle placed their faith in Jesus, but there were many others who did not. And I guarantee you, those people who, they saw this, and they're like, well, that was good. Maybe there's another show tomorrow. I got a dental appointment I got to go to. They, they, just, they walked away and did not believe. And I'll guarantee you that many of those people, just like today, are people who had said at one time or another, well, if Jesus would just do a miracle in my life, then I would believe. No, they won't. They will not believe because they will not believe. And, and the, verse, the question in verse 30 re reveals the clear shallowness of the thought process of those people. And frankly, not much has changed today. So you can see why we say quite often, those who do not believe because they will not believe, there's nothing we can do for them. They say, if just a miracle would happen. God could send the 10 plagues of Egypt, right? They wouldn't believe. God could give them the 10 greatest desires of their heart, that they believe would fulfill them, that they know will never be fulfilled in any other way, shape, or form, and they still will not believe. In verses 31 through 33, they even completely miss the point about Moses and the manna. One of the jobs of a rabbi, which is what Jesus does here, is to correct misunderstandings of the biblical text, and so he does that. He, 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 the people are attributing the manna to Moses, and Jesus is saying, Moses, the manna wasn't from Moses. Moses was just the vehicle. The manna came from heaven. And you need to understand that I am now coming from the Father, from heaven, and, and so forget about the bread. Get off of the Moses thing. Get off of the manna thing. I am here now. Look at me. See me. So, so they, they need to believe in Jesus as God. If you remember in that story of, of the wilderness, you know, the, God supplied the manna on a daily basis, right? So he said, I'm going to give you this manna on a daily basis. If you try to hoard it or try to accumulate it in any way, shape, or form, it's not going to work. It's going to go bad. The only day that you're going to be able to accumulate it is I'm going to give you enough on day six because day seven is the Sabbath. I'm not going to work on the Sabbath, and so it'll be, still be good on day seven. That's the only time that will work. And that's exactly what happened because there were people just like you and me who tried to hoard it, who tried to accumulate it, and the next day it was filled with maggots and it was bad and it was nasty. So, so really what this is is a trust God exercise. That's hard for us. Think about the abundance that you and I live in today. Think of the incredible abundance. I really doubt that there is anybody in this room who's a little worried about where their next meal is coming from. 
You might be worried about when it might come, but you're not worried about where it's going to come from. We have such abundance. And so what if God were to come? I don't know why God doesn't do this more today, but what if God were to come to us today and say, you need to trust me on an hourly basis, and you're not going to know what's going to happen from hour to hour? I think our heads would explode. We wouldn't be able to handle that. We've been taught just by our abundance to trust in our abundance and to be scared of lack. We've been taught about that. Again, not that 401ks aren't good. I got one of those things. It's not that, that having things is bad. It's a question of how our hearts are oriented uh, toward those things. The true bread from heaven, Jesus says in verse 32, is what he's trying to get them and us to understand. That he, Jesus, nourishes eternally and spiritually and is superior to the manna that is given to the Israelites. I, I was thinking about an, um, kind of a contemporary example of what our manna is, and I don't know why this popped into my head, but uh, Amazon One Click, that's like our manna. How many, don't raise your hand, how many of you, if you're just feeling a little bit inadequate or depressed, you feel a lot better after you do a little one-click action on, on Amazon? Have you ever thought about that? And you're like, golly. The only problem with that manna is porch pirates. So that's, their manna is stealing stuff off of our porches. And then verse 34, they say, all right, Jesus, let us have it. But they don't really mean it because they still don't understand. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, thank you for the insight, but could you please just load up those T-shirt guns and start shooting those things again? And then the last paragraph, which I believe is one of the most important paragraphs in, in the Bible. So 35 through the first part of 41. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, this is the first of the seven great I am statements. And this is playing for these people in this audience on a deeper level right in their faces. It is a reference to the burning bush saying to Moses, I am who I am. I am God. Jesus is saying, this is your burning bush moment right here. I am who I am. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. <laughs> you will not believe because you will not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then look at verses 39 and 40. They're parallel verses. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. Apparently, he's not going to pull out the loaves of sourdough. So they grumbled about him. Now, verses 39 and 40 say the same thing, but, but differently, with different language. Common ancient argumentation and rhetorical emphasis was to repeat the same thing, only using different words. It's, you see that in the Psalms. Ancient orators and teachers would stress the same point by reiterating it using alternative verbiage. You see what I just did there, right? It's a rhetorical device, and it's used when, when the, the person speaking and teaching doesn't, he's like, I can't seem to get through to them. So I need to say it in as many different ways, as, I need to say the same thing in as many different ways as possible. So like I said, this is one of the most important paragraphs, I think, in the Bible. Again, there's a strong Old Testament uh, allusion here. In the Old Testament, 
There's a great emphasis put on God's wisdom. If you've ever read through it, there's a big, it, that's a big deal, God's wisdom and, and the need for us to pursue wisdom. Wisdom is so important that, that the writers have personified wisdom as a woman to be pursued and, and, and to be able to capture and have. Uh, God's, God's word invites his people to eat and drink of, of wisdom. And wisdom is so good that the more you eat and the more, the more you drink, the more you're going to want. Jesus now appropriates that reality to him. The more we follow him, the more we know him, the more we allow him to love us, the more we're going to want of him because he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's not just a prophet. He's all that we need, and he's what we all need. But not everyone will have it, sadly. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, some hearts simply will not be penetrated. Understanding and discernment escapes many, and usually when it escapes them, it's under this this uh, guise of worldly wisdom. And then you look at verse 37 again. Craig Keener again writes this. Significantly, most of the people Jesus spoke to in his ministry, including here, accepted the theological reality that God is sovereign and controlled the essentials of the future and that God has provided humans with choice and responsibility for their choices. They accept that theological reality, and yet what, what's the result? They grumble. They grumble. Now, now now, just watch the progression. People haven't changed. Okay, watch the progression. Uh, the Jews, 3,600 years ago, they're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They went from being a, a, a well-respected, honored family, the family of, of Joseph and Jacob, uh, to becoming uh, slaves of the Egyptians. They're living in oppression. It's awful. And they begin to cry out to God, please take us out of here. They grumble to God. We don't like it here. We want to get out of here. We'll do anything to get out of here. And so God takes them out. And Moses is the guy that leads them out. And they get into the wilderness for what? Five minutes? They saw that sea being split. They saw those ten plagues come. They get into the wilderness for five minutes, and what happens? Moses, why would you bring us out here? This sucks. We'd rather be back in Egypt. You know, we had onions and cucumbers in Egypt. It was really cool. We had nice salads there, even though we were slaves. They start to grumble. Jesus does this incredible miracle where he feeds everybody and then says, look, it's better than just having bread every day. I'm going to give you eternal bread. I'm going to give you eternal life. It's way better than just having bread every day. You can come to me. And what do they do? They grumble. They're looking for that fulfillment, and he offers it to them, and they grumble. We do the same thing. In my own life, I will just tell you, and I know that my life mirrors many of yours because the human experience is, is the same or similar across the board. God will do something incredible in my life, and I'll be joyful and, gra and, and, and grateful for a day, two days, whatever. We just struggle with this this idea, okay, God, you, did, you solved that problem for me, but what about this one over here for crying out loud? Look, that's not quite enough, God. We've got this other problem over here. We just constantly are looking. We grumble. The exodus was their salvation. They grumbled. Jesus is our salvation. He humbled himself on the cross for our redemption. We still grumble. So I want to close with this. One of the things that I see in this is actually, especially... Here in Arcadia, I think this speaks to us especially, okay? Uh, one of the things I, I see in this is our fear of being ordinary. 
our fear. People are afraid of being ordinary. This is one of the reasons. Look, I love the Internet. I love digital communication. We're never going back. I'm glad we have it. It's made life much more efficient. But it's also exposed this desire we all have for fame. Uh, Cody talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that that study that shows that uh, 25 years ago, uh, in the list of 16 uh, different virtues that people were pursuing, fame was 15th or 16th, now it's number one. Okay? We are afraid of being ordinary. But look at the first 14 verses of this passage. These were ordinary people. These were common people, and that's where Jesus was working. Jesus works in the ordinary. That's usually where Jesus is, is in the ordinary. And the anecdote, one of the anecdotes for ordinariness, is is being willing to receive love. And I know that people, yeah, I want to be loved, but the problem is we've been conditioned by culture to understand that that's just not enough. The love of Jesus, yes, but I still want. The love of a spouse, the love of romance, the love of a friend, yes, that's good to have, but it's not quite enough. If you're loved, that, that, that's the antidote to ordinariness, but our culture pressures us for so much more. It's the problem that we have with lack or scarcity or inadequacy. This, this passage is a picture of our fear of being ordinary, our fear of scarcity, our fear of, of inadequacy, and Jesus coming and meeting that in a way that we would never expect, in a way that we don't think we need, but that we truly do need. Uh, Lynn Twist is an author, and she writes about the problem of scarcity. She says, in our world today, especially in, in America, we are ruled by the illusion, the illusion of scarcity. We build our, li- ideas, our, our lives around the idea that we live in scarcity and that scarcity is right around the corner. Yes, even for us here in Arcadia. She writes this, and this really connected with me. For most of us, our first thought when we wake up in the morning is, I didn't get enough sleep. Scarcity of sleep. Our next thought is, oh, how am I going to make it through today? Scarcity of time or a scarcity of capacity? Scarcity of, ina- uh, of adequacy? And, and the reason we wake up in the first place is because we're afraid of economic scarcity. Again, not that having a job and making money isn't important, it's important, but we've placed our entire identity and value in that, in that, in that fear that we're not going to have enough, that it's just right around the corner. Those of you who I know, I hear this from every financial, every wealth manager, every financial advisor, I know people will come in and they'll have a number. And the first thing the wealth manager tries to do with them is to help them understand that you need to double that number, and then when you get to that number, you're still not going to think it's enough. It's the fear of scarcity. We're afraid of this stuff. We're driven by the fear of economic scarcity, social capital scarcity, political scarcity. Desperately afraid of that. Love scarcity, education scarcity, and perfect body scarcity. We're scarcity fanatics. So we pursue those things to the detriment of the one area where we really do have scarcity, where Jesus supplies us an abundance. He gives us everything in that one area, that most important area where we do have scarcity, and he says, I've got it all for you. Come to me. Believe it or not, 
We need the ordinary. How's that for an uplifting Sunday morning message? We need the ordinary. Ordinary is good. Ordinary is, is normal. You understand, ordinary is where most of life is lived. I hope you understand that. Even for people that we think are just extraordinary, they're just extraordinary. The vast majority of their life is lived in the, in the ordinary, in the rut, in the routine, in the mundane. That's where they live their life. Many of you have heard this before, but it's true. You need to understand, real life is what happens between social media posts. You understand that, right? Okay? We need the ordinary because Jesus works in the ordinary, doing the impossible, but in the ordinary. The ordinary is also actually where we might even listen to God. We're not going to listen to God in the extraordinary. Here, here's Paul writing his second letter to um, Corinth. And he writes this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God was giving him. Uh, see, even Paul had this flinch toward, I'm going to find my fulfillment in, in this extraordinary greatness that God has given me, not in God himself. So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I am enough for you. So my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Our hardships today, our persecutions, our calamities being ordinary, being average, being medium, being nice. That's, that's our persecution. We've gone from genuine persecution and calamities to thinking that being ordinary is not enough. But that's where Jesus works, and that's where we'll listen. One of the most important things that you and I can do for our, both our emotional and spiritual health is that in the midst of the ordinary, remind ourselves of how much we actually have and then be joyful and grateful for it. Be joyful and grateful for what we actually do have, the favor that God has shown us and continues to show us. Um, the whole what would Jesus do movement, I, I don't know that I ever ran into anybody who was asking the question, what would Jesus do, and had the answer of he would be filled with joy and grateful. It's always about something else that ultimately leads back to our own personal greatness. That's why I wasn't really on board that much with that movement. Be joyful. Be grateful. Cultivate those things in your life. When we are extraordinary and we think we're extraordinary or the extraordinary happens to us and things go our way, we get the promotion, we get the bonus, we close the big deal, we, we get the attention of that one person that we've always wanted attention from, we're not that interested or available to listen to God anymore because we think we've done something special. God works in the ordinary. I'll leave you with, I think this is a great way to close this message, um, this quote from the great theologian Michael Scott. <laughs> Average people are special. That's why God makes so many of them. <laughs> Let's pray together. That's a weird time to start praying, right? Okay, here we go. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that you, um, uh, you, you work really hard and patiently to get our attention. And we're grateful for that. 
And we just call upon you now to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with, with uh, the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Fill us with the mind of Christ so that we can discern uh, all things. Um, help us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might be able to discern what is good and excellent and righteous and what comes from you. God, help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.